You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. One of the, the biggest casualties have been, and again, I use this word which people often think is derogatory, but I actually say with affection, the middle brow comedy yeah. has gone extinct. Yeah. This is The Backdrop. I'm Kevin Blyer. I promised to return to The Play That Goes Wrong, and here we are. If you don't already know, The Play That Goes Wrong is a great play about, well, a bad theater troupe that puts on a terrible murder mystery. Everything that can go wrong does go wrong. It's as simple as that. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Please allow me to introduce myself. I am Chris Bean the director of the Cornley Polytechnic Drama Society. And I'm delighted to be presenting to you this evening an extract from the murder at Haversham Manor. My In part one, I tried to solve the mystery of how such a seemingly simple show hides its comedic complexity behind pratfalls and Tony-winning set design. And to get to the bottom of it, I spoke to actors Matt Harrington and Matt Walker and the co-creator and original actor in the show, Henry Lewis. In part three, I promise to get back to Matt and Matt and go deep on just how wrong things can go wrong in the play that goes wrong. And creator Henry Lewis will be back for that one too. He's got a great story about raspberries. But here, in part two, it's New York Times comedy critic Jason Zinneman, the author of a great book about David Letterman, by the way, Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night, Jason gives me the full backdrop on what the success of this play, which is not political, partisan, or cynical, and which to my mind was the best written play in the past few years, even though it's not even written in the typical playwriting sense, what all that says about the current state of Broadway. I missed the, the show when it first came out, and I saw it in London yeah. after it was running for it with my kid, and I had a really strong reaction to it, and then I, and then I saw it I was like, oh, we gotta go see the other show by Mischief. And you know, there was interesting about them, I am the per per perfect person to talk about because they are an uh, improv troupe yeah. in London, which is, a lot of this is very misunderstood because uh, long form improv really isn't a thing in London. Uh, the Herald, do, they don't do that kind of they thing. They have a much less, much less, less yeah. of a tradition over there. Yeah. And so this is like, I think, and this is something I've been writing about and talking about for, 15 years of yeah. covering uh, Broadway is that there's a certain kind of really well-made, really funny, middle-brow comedy that Broadway used to specialize in and used to dominate in the culture. And it no longer does. And it ceded that territory to television and stand-up and all these other areas. But what's remarkable to me is this company Mischief, which is an improv company, it's like Second City, right, uh, has come along and proven that, oh, surprise, surprise, people actually want to see a hilarious physical comedy, you know, pinpoint timing, and it's not an accident that Noises Off has been revived many times. And I, I think it's notable that it came from a comedy world source. In the theater, they sort of, we've they kind of internalized the idea that, like, 
All right, this is dead. The Boulevard comedy is gone. Neil Simon is, those days are finished. And so this doesn't have an audience. And what was notable to me, I mean, the, the play that gone wrong, it, to me, is exceptional. It's a kind of form of it. The, the other play they did, they've done several, but the second play that's running, called the play, the play about the bank robbery. I talked to someone who's part of the production about this, about, oh, you're gonna transfer the, that show to New York. And that would be the real test because, first of all, it's, they're making fun of an American form. So there's some things they get a little off that American audiences will notice that English audiences will not. I see. They're making fun of noir movies, etc. Their um, specificity is a little bit askew. It's point. a little bit askew, yeah. although it has a couple elements that are fantastic, but it isn't as good as the play uh, it Goes Wrong. But the audiences love it. I mean, well, sure. the same way. And, it, and it's it would be interesting to see if like a less successful, because you know, Neil Simon could throw whatever he wanted in the 60s, it would be a hit. And I'm just sort of, Shocked, it's particularly now that I've moved from covering comedy to covering, I mean, to covering theater, theater to covering comedy, yeah. and I'm out, you know, every night going to clubs where there's this huge audience of people who want to laugh. Well, we will dig back into the play that goes wrong in just a moment, but I do want to put a little context on that shift that you've made. Yeah. Because I've read your keynote at oh, yeah. the Shakespeare <laughs> Theatre Company, and I agree with, I think, all of it. Um, <laughs> but that will help us put a little context around this, because, you know, you wrote the book on Letterman. I was a writer on The Daily Show. We both love comedy, but we also both love theatre. The premise of what you were suggesting was that you made the case that recently, even on Broadway, comedy is eating theater's lunch. Now, I don't know if that was your headline, but nonetheless, that was the headline. Can I ask you as best as you can in slightly less than the length of a keynote speech to make that case as best you can right now? Well, I think that stand-up and improv are uh, ascendant on multiple fronts, right? On a kind of, uh, let's take one. A lot of, if you're a 20-year-old, 21-year-old graduates from college right now, uh, and you're interested in performing, there's a good chance that you will look at the UCB Second City Juilliard uh, Yale, and you will choose, you'll look at who is successful in the world, who you want to be, and you'll go to UCB or Second City. It also helps that those places are cheaper. It helps, although not, that, that's true, that's true. But, it, but no, you're absolutely right. But that right. wasn't the case decades ago. So, I, and we haven't even seen And I think you impact. mentioned your colleagues at the New York Times are taking improv classes at night. Yes, so many it of them. It is de rigueur. It is it's the coin of the realm. It is pervasive. It is a bit of a bubble, comedy bubble. But, yes. But who knows how big it'll get. That's one, that's one data point, yeah. right? It's worth also thinking a, uh, a little bit about the implications for this, that you're gonna get 30-year-old artists who have a different skill set because they went to improv training than 30 years ago than uh, theater artists. Anyways, uh, second of all, um, I think if you look at sort of the, the cultural conversation, improv and stand-up are live art forms and they're constantly being talked about. The stars in these fields, whether they're Hannah Gatsby or Gary Goldman or whoever it is, are ascendant and because of that, you see increasingly Broadway bringing more and more of these artists to be the, you know, the, the, the comic relief on Broadway. In reverse, for years, the comic playwright has been coming scarce. And uh, I agree, because yeah. the comedians can have the, have the luxury of being more responsive to the current zeitgeist. Plays take a while to write and produce. But I do wonder why we can't find some 
carve out some space, as you pointed out. There are 10 non-comedic plays being produced for any one play that might see the light of day. Why is it we don't want to laugh? I mean, I think uh, the people absolutely want to laugh, and it's why when Christopher Rang's show, uh, whose last production was a big hit, um, the mischief shows are big hits. I think the appetite, the, the appetite is still there. I, th I, could, I have theories on why this has happened. I don't think it actually is because... Comedians are just flooding the zone? That's one part of it. I think it primarily has to do with the economics of Broadway. That the economics of Broadway, the, the, everything always goes back, in my opinion, to ticket prices. That what's happened is that it's become so prohibitively expensive, not just Broadway, but also off-Broadway and regional theater, to see it's a show. It's ludicrous. It's ludicrous yeah. that it's raised the stakes yeah. on your experience to such a level that it has got to either be an incredibly important piece of serious work <laughs> by Tom Stopper. That will change but, your life and you can tell your kids about. Exactly, which you're than definitely going to stand out. up and give an applaud no matter how mediocre you was. Or <laughs> it's got to be something with 50 dancers, the, 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 the kind of candy-colored uh, uh, showmanship of it all has to be off the hook. And that, By the way, we can talk about the automatic standing ovations another time, because <laughs> yes. I do agree that's also a piece of inflation that should be attended to. Totally, totally. On. So I, th I think because of that, the sort of great middle has disappeared, and that isn't only comedy that's hurt, but I would say um, one of the, the biggest casualties have been, and again, I use this word which people often think is derogatory, but I actually say with affection, the middle brow comedy has gone extinct. And look, comedy has a long history of reputable and disreputable um, <laughs> you know, forms, and you can't always divorce one for the other, and you have to, and you have to be able to fail just like in theater. And when occasionally a low or middle brow comedy comes to Broadway, like uh, One Man Two Governors, it does spectacularly well. I mean, that was a show that was rooted in all these old English comic forms that are would still be popular. So it has to be great, but it also benefits from being somewhat rare. If it does so well, it often has the benefit because it's the only comedy on Broadway that's not a comedian. It's a play. Yes. I, I think producers, what producers, I'm, I'm speculating here, what producers think is that a comedy is not going to be as high stakes and as, and as ah, transcendental yeah. experience. So we're not going to, we're not, you know, that sort of middle okay. of it is gone. But I, what I believe is that producers are not, and this isn't the first time this has happened, acting in their own best interest. <laughs> that that actually that point, there right? is money to be made that they're leaving on the table if they just invested in uh, comic playwrights or even maybe there's all these comedy writers who are writing for the multitude of platforms, give them money to write, give them money to workshop and write plays. Um, and, and being one them. of those, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I'd love that avenue. So stipulated, comedy is eating theater's lunch. But in the play that goes wrong, we actually have both. We have a comedy about a piece of theater. I, I came at the play that goes wrong as a fan of just straight up great writing. I and I actually consider it one of the best written plays in the past decade. Easy. Mm. What they do with writing conventions, they, the circular dialogue they get into, mm. the misaligned couplets, I just think all of that is genius. And maybe maybe that's because I'm a snob about it and so impressed with how they do it. They're right. tacticians in that way, let alone the comedic timing, the farce of it all. But I'm wondering if there's, you're a critic of comedy and theater, beyond the writing, 
why do you think I like it so much? Why, <laughs> why, uh, why am I such a cynic? I can answer. So joyful at this, and if I had a ticket for it tonight for the eighth time, I'd go tonight. <laughs> I'll tell. I'm tell you why. How does and, it break through and my I'll, barriers? And at the risk, I'm going to do something I don't like to do. Which is I'm going to criticize critics. Oh, okay. I'm going to criticize my own tribe here, which would say, critics take a lot of flack, uh, theater critics in particular, and a lot of unearned flack from theater people. Uh, but in this case, I think a, somebody who is a comedy writer like yourself understands the incredible difficulty of pulling off all the various kinds of comedy in that show. And you're absolutely right. There isn't just one. There's everything from pratfalls to uh, jokes on language. There's uh, there's there's kind of old vaudeville kind of stuff. There's, there's many different kinds of comedy, and as someone like yourself who's in the business knows uh, how how easy it is for those things to go badly or mediocrely. And critics, on the other hand, um, I do think, and I'm generalizing here, um, have a bit of a blind spot. Not in terms of appreciating the level of difficulty that actually pulling that show off is as hard as pulling off uh, a Michael Frayn play about big ideas. So, it, you know, that play got fairly good reviews, but it, did, it's not, it didn't get raves here. And I think it deserved it because what it's, it's often the difference between a good review and a rave has to do with the level of ambition the critic assumes that is going on. And in my opinion, that, that's, that's the blind spot. I utterly agree. And I'm glad I made you say it because <laughs> you said it with more eloquence than I could have, but also because it's on you now. That's true. Uh, I happen to agree that that's it, the level of difficulty. It's hard to get any play mounted, let's be honest. Yes. And so we all should come at it with some charity. Yeah. I feel, even critics. Right. And they do. And they do. Fair enough. Yeah. I would even say there it's working at a level thematically that we may not see because it's investigating the idea of incompetence right now mm. because these are incompetent thespians right. that still manage to get to the curtain call despite yeah. everything. Right. Finding a way for the audience to root for incompetent people is hard to do right now. Mm -hmm. But it's a great comedic conceit, certainly. It's this D-level theater troupe who has made too many big swings, Cat, yeah. James and the Peach, uh, and yet they keep trying. It's the play that goes wrong right now in a country that's going wrong in a world that's going wrong. Well, you know, my, the other thing I would say that, that I was impressed with this show, I saw it in the tradition of a specific kind of comedy that you rarely see anymore, and I was this opinion was underlined by seeing their other show, which is that it reminded me of old Buster Keaton, which is to say, yes, it's comedy, but there's an element that's kind of like a, a contemporary action movie that okay. uh, which Buster Keaton certainly you see the Buster Keaton's they seem like action movies. And, and and actions where incredibly the walls fall around them. yes and those yeah. are real walls those yes, aren't CGI are. walls and you're seeing that that ceiling and that stage actually collapse and that's a real heavy person on there falling there with you and there is a level of excitement and high stakes yeah. when you're seeing that kind of danger on stage and I do think um, their other show had a similar um, scene, which was incredibly okay. scary and dangerous to watch. And there's elements of it which, <laughs> which are similar to watching the circus, the acrobats. But there's also, to me, it's more of this very specific kind of comedy that once was a, a steady part of our pop culture diet and now isn't. I actually think they have it both ways, or they get it both ways, which is they get to have the high stakes of actual danger 
you get a sense that something could actually be going wrong yeah, right yeah. there and someone could fall. But they also have the low stakes of you get to laugh at it because it's just a play. It's just a play. <laughs> Well, let me ask you a question. Let me because uh, I'm is, not. I have no answers. Okay. Well, let's see. <laughs> to play devil's advocate about for and defend the critics now, because I've I. Uh, Noises. Forgive me, did the critics not like to play the No, they, they liked it. It just was, it was, they didn't rave about it. They didn't okay. rave about it. But what they did rave about is Noises Off. Of course, yeah. And, which is a similar... As they should. So, so it's not like they don't, you yeah. know, that they can't... Or I would say One Man, Two Governors also yeah, got raves. Yeah, yeah. It's surprising we don't have one of those, at least one of those every season. Like, oh. they're so obviously commercial to me. I agree. Because the other thing I would say is, again, I saw this with my kids. You can take your kids to these these shows. Yeah. They yeah. It, and also you know one musicals are traditionally much more commercial than plays, right? For a variety of reasons. But this kind of action-packed danger, that that is uh, well, well one of the reasons they're more commercial because families love them, right? This, you know, my kids <laughs> went berserk over the show, and I'm not sure. I think they would go berserk over noises off, but I'm not I'm not as sure. So, I mean, yeah, it does well, seem like it's, it's... I think you have an answer for your own question, because I believe you had cited... You cited a group of theater makers who had worked in comedy who, with a grant from the Mellon Foundation, met to talk about why comedy is so scarce and why there's a bias against comedy. And the list of reasons for the bias against comedy in the theater, which include... And by the way, it feels like I'm about to start a top ten list, <laughs> speaking of your Letterman book. Uh, four reasons. One, skepticism that comedy is important. Two, not trusting silliness. Three, the criticism that something is, quote, sitcom -y, unquote. Four, that too many artistic directors have no sense of humor. <laughs> um, so, I'm a, I'm you a, focus I'm on number one. I'm the son of an artistic director, so that's very funny to me. Uh, there you go, there you go. <laughs> but I think you and I are coming to some conclusion that, in its own way, comedy can be important. So, number one should be written off. Who's to say about the other three? Yes. Uh, and what, you know, you can't control for the other three. Some artistic directors don't have a sense of humor. Fine. Well, that gets done. to another point, which answers the earlier question about why there aren't so great, it's not, why there aren't more of these comedies. The, the real truth is, and this is, is that the people who are in charge of producing shows on Broadway, people who and, and the uh, who run the literary departments at the big regional theaters and the the gatekeepers, yeah. they simply don't go to comedy clubs to improv right. theaters. Right. There's a lot of theater-like things going on at improv theaters. There's a lot of like hour-long shows. They, They're blending into each other in that sense. Yeah, they are. Right. But like you know, it's it's the same thing. True, like SNL doesn't go to the 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 Lauren Michaels doesn't go to off Broadway theaters to find talent. Where there's a ton of people who Lauren Benanti would be an incredible SNL cast member, but for completely arbitrary members. Colbert's using her for that reason. Of course, exactly. yeah, exactly. He's there. He knows. He knows. He gets. He understands he gets the way that. they don't. Yeah. But it's the same thing true for theater people. That yeah. the theater producers aren't looking at this vast universe of incredibly talented people in this city that they live in because they're looking at the same theater uh, pipelines right. that they've always looked at. Speaking of Colbert and of Letterman and the talents on those shows who could be tapped to write the next great comedy play, I couldn't let Jason go without talking about a central figure in his book about David Letterman, someone I'm proud to call an old friend, Letterman's first head writer Meryl Marco, who, as it happens, was just given the Patty Chayefsky Laurel Award by the Writers Guild. Chayefsky, of course, was one of our greatest playwrights, and funny, too. One of the arguments that the book sort of implicitly makes is that to understand the why David Letterman had this revolutionary impact on comedy, you have to understand Meryl Marco. Not just to know that she was the head writer and not just know that 
you know, she uh, came up with a lot of things like the top 10 list yeah. or yeah. Steve Petrick's, um, but also to understand how her particular sensibility matched perfectly with Letterman and pushed him in areas where he needed pushing. Mm -hmm. So what was critical for writing the piece was that, and I missed this, you know, she was a, just a great, great source. And there was periods of time, you know, weeks, months where, you know, uh, I'd be talking to her every day. We would do it over, uh, she likes to communicate by, by she writes, she's a writer through yeah. and through. Oh, so yeah. she would be emailing or text or um, or uh, over Gchat or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, or I guess it was emails. But to get that kind of, I would be studying some old show and I would write her and be like, well, what were you thinking here? And she would respond yeah. it, and then we'd get into it. And then through that, this probably was actually quite like one of the wonderful things of my job is you can have these kind of, you know, very intense, reporter source relationships where you're talking to someone all the time over years and you really get to know somebody and you could feel you have to do that to feel confident to be sort of get inside their head a bit definitely and um she and she's an incredibly funny brilliant person as you know um but then i went to la and i met her and but it was actually it was better to do it by writing i could have told you that meryl's a writer and she'd write one hell of a broadway play So there you have it. The Play That Goes Wrong reinvents a hit Broadway comedy by updating an old screwball with style and straight-up virtuosity. That's how it goes right. But in the next part, a future episode, we'll find out how The Play That Goes Wrong goes really wrong. Creator Henry Lewis and actors Matt Harrington and Matt Walker tell me the worst things that have gone wrong, from stage crashers to errant raspberries, and how when it goes wrong, they still make it go right. Jason Zinneman is the comedy critic for the New York Times and the author of Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night. If you enjoy The Backdrop, subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen. The Backdrop is produced by Nella Vera, edited by Nella, and by me, and part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.